What's up, everybody? Welcome to week two of Unchanging Christmas. I hope that if you live locally and you're hearing these messages on a week-to-week basis, that we get to see you on December 19th at Millennia Park. Just a reminder, bring your own chair, bring your own coat. It may get cool out there, but we're going to be together. We're going to be lifting up Jesus. We're going to be enjoying our Christmas service in Millennia Park, the 19th at 4 p.m. All that being said, we're going to dive into some more Unchanging Christmas. Now, if you're new and this is the first time listening to one of these, let me catch you up really quick. Unchanging for us is an adjective, not a verb. So for us, it's not that Christmas has changed and we're going to come together and we're going to unchange it and make some Christmas movie about it. For us, unchanging describes the unchanging hope that is found in the Christmas message. Here's what you know and I know. In the last 24 months, so much about our lives have changed. You can't cough in public anymore. You got to hold that thing in. The way you work has changed. Some of your morning routines have changed. Education has changed. Our plans have changed. What you thought you were going to do last year changed, and then it changed again this year. All kinds of things are in a constant state of change around us, and the result is more anxiety, more uncertainty, and an overwhelming sense of, I don't know if I'm going to be okay. And the good news for us today is that Christmas has not changed. And I'm not just talking about your Christmas traditions, the lights you're going to put up, the ornaments that you hang on the tree, that roast you're going to make on the certain night when you go over to your auntie's house. I'm talking about the news that God moved in history to bring a Savior into the world. And on a tiny night from a tiny family in a tiny town in a tiny barn in the middle of nowhere, a Savior was born. And in him, there is a hope that will not change. In him, for us, the good news is that hope can be found. And there is no event coming in the future, not another pandemic, political shifts, social change, that will change the hope that we have found together in Jesus. It is an unchanging, unshakable hope that is for us. And we celebrate Christmas because it announces to us that an unchanging hope is available for you and me. And we're diving way into this hope today. We're going to be in the book of Matthew and I'll explain what we're going to deal with as we get in there. Now, this is very much a part of the Christmas story, but it is so often skipped over. When you did the little pageant and your parents dressed you up like a wise man and put you in a little church where you had to come out at just the right time, chances are they didn't read Matthew chapter 1 at the beginning. When you gather around a fire, if you read a little kid's Bible to your children, chances are they didn't put the entirety of Matthew 1 in that children's Bible. Why? Uh, It's the genealogy of Jesus. It's his lineage. It's where he came from. But it says something important about who he is. If you're not familiar with this Bible talk and genealogies, just think of Matthew chapter 1 as the 23 and me of Jesus. I'm going to dive in and we're going to read the entire chapter chapter together. Well, the first 17 verses to be correct. This 
is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez father of Herzon, uh, Hezon father of Ram, Ram father of Abinadab, Abinadab father of Nashan, Nashan the father of Salmon. Now, just so you know, we're going in deep. This would be a great time to share this message and go, oh my gosh, you guys, this is unbelievable. We are in a big list of names. You got to get, this would be a good time to text your friends. Hey, you got to check this out because we're in the genealogy and we're just going to keep going. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Hezekiah, father of Manasseh. Oh my gosh, hang on, hang on. Here comes the good part. This is the good stuff. Don't miss this. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Haman. Haman, the father of Josiah. Josiah, father of Jehoiakim and his brothers of the time went to exile in Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, oh my gosh, it gets better. Jehoiachin, the father of Shemelio, Shemelietel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Elikim, Elikim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elud, Elud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of uh, of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile in Babylon, and 14 to the exile of the Messiah. I know your mind is blown, isn't it? But let me tell you about some of the meaning that we unpack when we unpack the genealogy of Jesus. There are three unchanging truths buried in this list of names that you cannot afford to miss this Christmas. The, the first one is this. Christmas, the Christmas message is good news, not good advice. The Christmas message is good news, not good advice. And there's a big difference in between the two. Advice is counsel about what you need to do. Good news is information about something that has already been done. Advice urges you to go out and make something happen. The weight of responsibility is on your shoulders. Good news calls you to recognize that something has happened and you are going to adjust your life accordingly. Uh, advice means I can tell you what you need to do, but basically it is on you to go out and make it happen for yourself. And good news is this has already been accomplished. Let me break it down for you like this. If you were to imagine us as a village and uh, we together, those of us who call ourselves Momentum Church, were a self-sustaining village and we together lived and had crops and farms and raised children and, and everybody had their little role and part to play in this village. But we found out that a village down the road, 10 times our size was coming to attack us and we had imminent war in the next 30 days. 
Now, in, at that point, we could bring in a military advisor. They could tell us where to put weapons and chariots and bows and arrows and spears and staffs and swords. Uh, we're in medieval times in my vision here, so you're just going to have to roll with it. This military advisor could show us what we need to do and where the best defenses are going to be and where to put children and all of those things in the event that the war gets ugly. But guess what? The, new, the, the onus of responsibility, the weight of getting it done rests completely on our shoulders. However, if the night before the war was supposed to happen, our worship team went down to the encampment of this ten times village that's ready to attack us. They go out with guitars and drums and, and whatever other instruments there is and Will and Martha sing a song that is so beautiful. The entire invading army repents on the spot. They throw their weapons down and all their resources at the feet of our worship band and say, we are so sorry we ever troubled you. You will never hear from us again. The battle is done. Now guess what? The worship team is coming back with good news. Hey guys, we have news to report. The battle is over. Lives won't be lost and you can now live accordingly. There is a difference in when you get advice and good news. Let me contextualize a little more. Let me bring this into today. It's the holidays, right? And you know about me and I know about you. Well, you know this about me. I may not know this about you, but here it comes. January 1st, I'm going to have a few pounds to knock off. I am planning for it unapologetically, Jan 1st is coming and I'm going to wake up and I'm going to go, okay, that was fun, but now I got to get back in shape. Now, I could go to some transformation boot camp and they could give me advice. Oh, you need to do this. You need to work out here. You need to eat these things. You got to cut this out and you got to start doing this. And that advice is good, but the, and the onus of responsibility still rests squarely, squarely on my shoulders. It is on me to go and work it out. However, if on January 1st, a scientific company discovers a chemical compound that I can take at night and, and it, you put a couple drops on your tongue and then you go and, and, it, and it takes any carb you've consumed, any sugar that's entered your body and yes, any drop of beer and it causes your body to process said carbs and sugars and beers with the same chemical makeup as a, bowl or as a, as a cup of vegetable juice and all those foods you love are just as satisfying. Uh, they're just as delicious, only they make you more lean and trim in the process now I don't have good advice anymore. I've got good news. Because something's changed in my favor. My friends, Matthew starts with this list of names to anchor this story in history. He does not begin with once upon a time or long ago in a galaxy far, far away like other fairy tales and fictional stories. He says, you can test me on this. Matthew walks up with the hope of Jesus in his hands and he says, fact check me. This is good news, not fairy tale, not myth, and not advice about how you're supposed to live from this day forward. This is entirely different. This changes things. 
See, when we approach the Christmas story, we don't approach it like there's things in there that we need to apply to it. Let's read this and find the principles so we can apply it. How would you even apply the Christmas story? What do you, what do you, what you, you promote, you pick up a side hustle as a shepherd, you're going to promote uh, outdoor childbirth, you're going to take your knocked up girlfriend on a 90 mile donkey ride. You can't apply this stuff because it's good news. And that should affect the way we see the entirety of the Christian faith, not just Christmas, but our faith as well. Christianity is not a set of platitudes and virtues that you can work into your life and sprinkle on top to live better. Oh, that stuff is in there. But it is first good news about God breaking into history, fighting a battle for us. We could never win ourselves. And now we rest in hope. There's a difference. See, all other spiritual, you know, this is what makes Christianity unique from every other religion. See, every other religion, way of living, has some guru at the center of it who says, if you do these things and adopt these practices, meditate in these ways, you could reach a higher spiritual, spiritual reality. But our faith begins with the fact that we could never reach that reality on our own. But thank God that reality came down to us. The question of Christianity is not, are you ready to do A and then B and C? The question of Christianity is, do you believe? My middle daughter, Penelope, is now seven years old and she is an active participant in our setup team. And, and, and I'm telling you, setup teamers, I love you, but she's working circles around you because you guys go every other week. She is there every single Sunday. I, I've come into my bathroom Sunday mornings at 5 a.m. to a note that says, Dad, do not forget to come wake me up and bring me for setup team. Nine out of ten mornings recently, she, she, I wake up and I almost step on her because she's drug a blanket and a pillow and a mattress beside my bed because she wants to be there for setup team. She's usually awake before I am ready to come and do her job and 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 this Sunday there are going to be people at Momentum who are sitting in chairs that she set up and we have these little talks and we spend time together and she absolutely loves it I have not figured it out why we love <laughs> we can't get people to stay on setup but Penny is just there and uh, on the drive uh, two weeks ago she asked me this question she said dad am I a Christian Time out. Let's answer that question through the lens of Matthew chapter 1. See, I don't answer that question when Penny says, am I a Christian? I don't answer and go, well, let me ask you. Are you going to keep setting up chairs on a week-to-week basis? Do, do you commit to only using good language and saying the right things? No cuss words? Are you going to remain abstinent and sexually pure through your high school years? No. I say to Penny, do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he came for you? Do you believe that he's enough? Do you believe that he died so you can live? Because that's how you respond to good news. This story, this faith, who we are, 
is based on belief in something that actually transpired. This is good news, not good advice. Here's another unchanging truth about Christmas. All the best stories are really true. Critics and skeptics cannot stand the allure and the power that well-told stories have in the human heart. And they've got their reasons. They would say it's childish or naive or escapism. And over and over again, though, the reality is unavoidable. Critics and skeptics and atheists complain about the allure of stories and how childish it is. And meanwhile, Peter Jackson and Spielberg and Warner Brothers and Marvel keep making great films and cashing checks. Why? Because there are certain longings in the human soul that are undeniable. We have a longing to see good win over evil. We have a longing to fly. We have a longing for purpose. A longing to be a part of a family that would sacrifice themselves if it, for us if it ever came to it. We have a longing to sacrifice ourselves for others. We have a longing to see that there is more to this life than meets the eye. And there's more to day-to-day living than just getting by. There are things in us that we cannot deny. So Marvel just shows up, makes another Avengers, and you wish you were on the team. Pixar makes a movie about an older man who lost his wife, and he decides he's done living, and he meets a boy, and they go on an adventure, and he recovers his soul in the process, and you're right there with him, feeling that there's something in that story that's also true about you. I find it interesting. We are in a time... When everybody's going, this cannot be the way the world's going. And they drop another Matrix movie. Because we're all hoping we're going to wake up from this. Those movies capture our souls. The skeptics say that's juvenile and childish. But Matthew chapter 1 begs to differ. It would say that those stories are really just pointing to this story. C.S. Lewis said it like this. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Hang on, I'm going to read that again and then go on to the rest of this because you can't miss this. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is we were made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy, echo, or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. What is he saying here? He's saying every time you see something in those stories that awakens your soul, it is your soul saying, I was not meant for this place. There is another one. And then Matthew 1 comes along. And if it began with once upon a time or long ago, We might just take this story as another myth pointing to the higher spiritual reality. 
But the genealogy of Matthew tells us this is not another myth pointing to the higher reality. This is the higher reality from which all the myths have come. And one day, all of those longings will be fulfilled in Jesus. In Jesus, there is a community for you. You will live eternally. Your life can matter. Good will defeat evil. In Jesus, what has been lost will be found. What has been broken will be fixed in Him. And one day, paradise will be restored. All of the good stories are actually pointing to this story. Third and finally, you guys, what do we see in this genealogy? We see Christmas is for you. It's for you. You get this interesting list of names. And it would take hours to unpack each and every one and share what they were pointing to in Jesus. I can give you a clue. The type of Jesus people came from represent the type of people Jesus came for. Let me just tell you, there are five women in this genealogy. Five of them. Now, pause. Let me, time out. Let me, let me explain why that matters. See, in this day, your genealogy was more like a resume. This was how you recommended yourself to the world around you. And you would often, just like people do today, be inclined to tune up that resume a little bit. It'd be like if you went to Southwestern College and it was a time in your life where you didn't really have direction or drive and so you flunked out of Southwestern, but a few years went by and you got some motivation and you got your life together and you go to UCSD and you graduate with honors, then you apply for a job and you're filling out your resume. Well, you might be inclined to leave the Southwestern days out. And we see the same thing when we look through history in these genealogies. We know that Herod the Great went to great lengths to edit people from his genealogy because there were people he didn't want to be associated with. Jesus did just the opposite. They include the women. When everybody else said these women are little better than property. Not only that, but if you'd look at some of the five women, a few of them, Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab, were foreigners. They were of, listen, they were of different races. This makes the gospel passionately anti-racist and radically inclusive from its very first page. Jesus includes the foreigner, those of different races, the women when they were little better than property, not just any women, some women of very, very questionable backgrounds. Uh, Tamar, her story, the reason in verse 3 we get this line around her, it says, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Because the story of Tamar and her offspring is the story of incest. She convinced her father-in-law to sleep with her and have a child. This is outside the law. This is outside what Moses would want. This is outside the written commandments. This is outside what you should do in an acceptable culture in the people of God. But she's included in the story. Rahab? Rahab was the prostitute. She, you go to Joshua, 
And she's included. She's given a seat at the table. Ruth, also foreigner. You would keep reading. You get to verse 6. You might go, oh, finally. Okay, there was Jesse, the father of King. Oh, okay, we got some royalty now. Somebody I can stand on. Somebody that I came from. But then it immediately says David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And he uses these words on perfect purpose because he goes, you guys remember David? That great king who was supposed to be everything you were hoping for? Do you remember his life? Do you remember the springtime when all the kings go out to battle? He decided to put his feet up and rest. Do you remember he was wandering around his palace aimless and bored and he sees that woman? He says, I have to have her. Do you remember he inquires about the woman to find out that this is Uriah's wife? Do you remember who Uriah was? You remember Uriah was one of the only people to befriend David when he was an outlaw and a fugitive? Do you remember that there was hit out on David's head and you could become a national hero by killing David and laying him at King Saul's feet? You remember you would always have enough food and wine and riches and a place in the palace for the rest of your life, but Uriah was a friend. He ran through the deserts, hiding with David in caves, sleeping on rocks. He was even one of David's mighty men. And through it all, David ends up having Uriah killed. Why? To cover up the fact that he slept with Uriah's wife. If you're in the original audience, these words would actually make your skin crawl. They would bring up for you something so cowardly and so detestable that you would feel it physically. Matthew writes each and every one of these people into the story of Jesus. Why? The type of people Jesus came from, he also came for. What do we have in this list of names? We have adulterers, outcasts. We have those uh, written off because of their race. Those written off because of their moral reproach. Those written off because they have broken the law of God and they are unacceptable to Him. And what does Jesus do? He brings them in and gives them a seat at the table. What does that mean? Christmas is for you. In Jesus, you have a seat at the table. In Jesus, you've been welcomed in. In Jesus, you don't have to be an outcast, outsider, or stranger. He is bringing you in. The good news of Christmas is that He came so we could be made clean and acceptable. This is good news, not good advice. You know the... Other interesting thing we see here. You take David and compare him to these women, and uh, he's a man, not a woman. He's an Israelite, not a foreigner. He's a king, not a peasant. And yet, he did something so much more morally disgusting than these ladies. And yet, he's welcomed into 
because everyone is in need and acceptable of the grace of God. Tim Keller says it so much better than I ever could. He says, so no one, not even the greatest, doesn't need the grace of Jesus. And no one, not even the least, is beneath the grace of Jesus. In Jesus, prostitute and king sit down as equals. Male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral. We're all the same. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you set the good news, prostitute and king sit down as equals. And I'll tell you why this matters. The longer I live, love people, hear stories and pastor, the more I hear every single one of us has a reason why we believe we shouldn't be accepted and welcomed in. I'm not smart enough, strong enough, Pretty enough, slick enough, cool enough, likable enough, extroverted enough, rich enough. I don't have as much to offer. I'm barely making it. Every single person has their reason that they feel they can't step fully into everything that God has for them. Matthew begins with this list of names at the beginning of his gospel. Remember, there's 26 more chapters after this. And he begins with this list to tell you everything you're about to read is for you. The hope, the love, the faith, the acceptance, the welcome, the family, the embrace, the death, and the resurrection are for you. And you deserve every last piece of it because you matter to God my friends that is the unchanging hope that we have in Christmas love you guys can't wait to see you in the part peace